The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Matt Gallagher is an American writer who served in the Iraq War as a U.S. Army captain. He first became known for his blog, which was shut down by the military, and his subsequent war memoir, Kaboom, Embracing the Suck in a Savage Little War. Since then, he's received an MFA from Columbia University and published several books of fiction and essays, proving himself to be a thoughtful contributor to the literature of conflict. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie is a Nigerian writer who, although she is only 42, has established herself as one of the world's greatest authors. The Times Literary Supplement has called her the most prominent of a procession of critically acclaimed young Anglophone authors who is succeeding in attracting a new generation of readers to African literature. She, too, is a contributor to conflict literature, particularly in her book Half of a Yellow Sun, which tells the story of the Biafran War through the perspective of multiple characters, including a professor, a British citizen, and a Nigerian houseboy. Matt Gallagher joins us today to talk about his experiences as a reader, writer, and soldier in Iraq, his first encounter with Adichie's masterwork, Half of a Yellow Sun, and how his experience as a soldier informed his relationship with literature. That's all coming up on this episode of The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. A good episode today with a good guest, Matt Gallagher. It's one of the more thoughtful people you are going to meet. He will tell us about his journey from being the son of two protesters of the Vietnam War to a post-9-11 American soldier to being a voice the military wanted to stifle. And of course, to his own literary projects, including his forthcoming book, Empire City, a novel, and his participation in the Storybound project. Matt's an expert in conflict literature, what soldiers do, how they cope, how they live, and how their actions impact the lives of civilians. It's a complicated subject, one of those charged environments where a single action or gesture can affect the lives of multiple people for generations. How can we best deal with this kind of world where empathy may sit in an uneasy tension with mission. Matt will help us sort through some of this today, and he'll talk about his love for the author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. We haven't talked a lot about her on the History of Literature podcast, mostly because hers is a history still being written. She's an incredible author. Her books are highly recommended. Someday, 50 years from now, let's say, the host of the History of Literature podcast will be doing a 10-part episode on her books. That host's name will be Jack Wilson. For, like the dread pirate Roberts, Jack Wilson will live on long after the current inhabitant of that name has retired to the great Borgesian library in the sky, where he will be very happy reading the books of Mr. Gallagher and Ms. Adichie. Sounds like heaven? It's close enough. Let's take a quick break, listen to some emails, and come back for a conversation with our guest, Matt Gallagher. 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here's an email we got from Neela. Subject, it's your fault that people avoid me. Whoa, what a subject line. First thing that popped into my mind, I will confess. I thought, oh no, this is about Blake, isn't it? That screw up where I had Blake following in the footsteps of Darwin instead of the other way around. This poor emailer probably announced it triumphantly to all of her friends who now shun her for her. Jack Wilson inspired ignorance. Oh, why, why, why did I ever make that blunder? It will haunt me forever. I have both hands over my eyes as I peer through them, peer through my fingers, reading the email as a form of self-torture. I have to read it. I deserve it. I owe her that much at least. Dear Jack, imagine this. It is a bleary Tuesday morning in February. It is just after 7 a.m. Still dark out. People at the bus stop are looking haggard and despondent waiting for bus number 169. The hurricane is coming, said the man on the news, and they're inclined to believe him. What with the wind, rain, and is that hail? Umbrellas are no use anymore. One is abandoned, broken on the side of the road. At this point, you can only rely on the bus stop shelter for protection. Whoa. <laughs> we stopped there. Wow, what a scene. I'm right there with you. Terrified. Email continues. Why then don't the passengers gather under the shelter, but instead they choose to huddle just outside it? Well, there is a woman in a black coat standing there. She has earphones in her ears and she is giggling. Now, 7 a.m. during a blizzard is no time for giggling, but she just can't control herself. Her giggling is clearly disconcerting to others. But believe me, she's not insane. She's just listening to her favorite podcast and the wonderful and hot host. <laughs> the wonderful and hot host. That's in parentheses with an exclamation mark and hot. My, my. That's pretty funny. <laughs> Me, Jack Wilson, going to quote one of my students in Taiwan. She was a very charismatic English teacher herself, and it turned out that I not only taught her, but I taught one of her former students, who became an English teacher too. Both were now my students. 
one in her mid-30s, the other in her early 20s, and I was myself 23. So I said to my student, the older one, hey, do you know I teach one of your former students? She became an English teacher because of you. And my student said, really? Oh, that's nice. And I said, yes. She said she loved your class. And the woman I was teaching, the older one, started blushing a little bit, said, oh, that's a nice thing for her to say. And I said, yes. She said, quote, she was so nice and so beautiful, I wanted to be her. And my student kind of smiled bashfully and said, oh, maybe when I was younger. (laughs) Is the host of the History of Literature podcast hot? Oh, yes, absolutely, he is. I mean, (laughs) no, I got carried away. Let me try again. Is the host of the History of Literature podcast hot? Oh, maybe when I was younger. Back to the email. The wonderful and hot host just told the story of how one of his college professors asked the students about a particular Dickens novel to which one student proposed Middlemarch. She can't stop giggling. People get uncomfortable. They prefer to get wet outside the shelter. I hope no one caught a cold. And if they did, well, they have the history of literature to blame. Oh, sure. Put that on me. Why not? What kind of a wonderful and hot exclamation mark host would send people outside in a rainstorm? Now I have that on my conscience. Back to the email. Needless to say, the girl in the black coat will be rereading Middlemarch very, very soon. And she's still very curious to know the correct answer to that professor's question. All the best from Neela. P.S. Please forgive me the provocativeness of the subject of this email. I sadly couldn't help myself. Well, Neela, thank you so much for the email, and the provocativeness of the subject is well and truly forgiven. You have given me a good laugh, although I do hope that those poor souls who ventured out into the hail to get away from the podcast... found their way back to safety without too much trouble. One more email from Brian. Subject, in support of literature. Hello, Jack. I was lucky enough to stumble across your wonderful podcast last week and have not been able to stop listening since. I started reading really great books about a year ago, and a few of my favorites have been Marias, Tolkien, Stoner by Williams, Borges, Cesares, Nausgaard, and Auster. I have been reading Tolstoy for the past month and a half, and it was through searching Tolstoy in the podcast search that I came upon, I came across your podcast. Since then, I have been nothing short of addicted and have gone on to purchase Magic Mountain, The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, and The Bell Jar due to the high praise they receive on the show. I have always sought videos, talks, essays, etc. that feed into my excitement for reading, and since finding your podcast... I have been able to bring that constant search to a halt as I listen to you discuss authors I've read and new ones I'm just now discovering. Thank you for putting your fantastic podcast out into the world and for sharing your excitement for literature. It is well received. Your new supporter, Brian. Well, thank you, Brian. And guess what? You, as a Patreon supporter, have a little surprise coming up for you. Bonus content. Yes, yes, all those who have signed up on patreon.com slash literature are about to be the lucky recipients 
of a new audio link to some Jack Wilson original content, probably one of his stories. So if you haven't signed up yet, please do head on over to patreon.com slash literature and start the eager anticipation of what will surely be the highlight of your life, or at least one of them, right up there with the feeling you get when flossing your teeth and a particular little crumb comes loose. It's been bothering you all day, hasn't it? And now it's gone and you can spit it into the sink and it will never bother you ever again. That's a good feeling, isn't it? And I'm offering you the chance to replicate this life highlight simply by heading over to patreon.com slash literature where you can join the ranks of the post-floss community. Or they haven't been post-flossed yet. They're waiting for their flossing. Teeth standing all together in neat rows with a little bit of crud down there by their feet. Hey, maybe if you guys weren't leaning on each other, you wouldn't need the flossing. Or are you doing that because you've been waiting for so long? and you're tired. My mistake. Stand up straight. It won't be much longer. The bonus content is on its way. And you will feel the blessed relief of the pure of tooth very, very soon. That's patreon.com slash literature. One more quick little break, and then Matt Gallagher. Okay, joining me now is Matt Gallagher, author of the Iraq War Memoir, Kaboom, and his latest novel, Empire City, which follows a group of superpowered soldiers and civilians as they navigate an imperial America on the precipice of a major upheaval. Matt is here today to discuss his life, his works, and the inspirational example of one of his favorite authors, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, the best-selling and prize-winning author of Americana and Half of a Yellow Sun. Matt Gallagher, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jack. I appreciate it. So I want to start with you and your background, but I almost don't know where to begin. I was thinking if this were a novel or a movie, maybe we'd start with the moment when Senator Elizabeth Warren read your op-ed on the Senate floor, and then we could do flashbacks <laughs> from there, or or we'd start when you were interviewed at the 92nd Street Y by General David Petraeus. Uh, when you were growing up, is this the life you imagined for yourself? Oh, uh, probably not. No, uh, I grew up in the uh, the suburbs of Reno, Nevada. Um, mm. Kind of a quiet suburban life. Both my parents were lawyers. Uh, I was probably supposed to be a lawyer myself, and 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 that's good. We uh, live in a nation of laws, after all. But life ended up taking me uh, a very different route, both uh, into and through the military, and and then afterwards as a writer. Yeah. So was the military part of your family background? Did you have? Uh, was it something your parents were involved with or aunts and uncles or anything? Uh, yes and no. Uh, both of my grandfathers served in World War II in Korea. Mm. One of them, one as an officer, one as an enlisted medic. Uh, so my parents were both uh, children of veterans and uh, uh, proud of, of their father's military service. Uh, that said, both my parents uh, protested Vietnam. Mm. Uh, I had an 
uh, I had an uncle who served in Vietnam, but both my parents came of age during that war and, and protested it. So, you know, looking back on it, um, you know, matters of war and peace and, and American foreign policy were kind of part of the, the dinner table. And uh, my brother and I were, were raised for, uh, I think, a, a healthy mix of uh, respect for service mm-hmm. and, and military members, but also, you know, a bit of skepticism toward uh, how that uh, force can be applied overseas. So, you know, joining joining the army wasn't something I had to do uh, or anything, but uh, it was it was just kind of always there uh, growing up uh, that, uh, you know, the military was uh, was something that um, people did and joined. And and uh, that's uh, ended up being a route for me as well when when I uh, wanted to pay for college with ROTC. Mm. I want to talk about that decision of yours uh, to join the military when you get a little bit older. But let's go back a little bit and see if we can trace back your roots as a writer. And in literature, were you uh, a bookish child, someone with your uh, reading under the covers with a flashlight, or did that come later? No, I definitely was a bookish kid. Uh, mm-hmm. And that came, from my, that came from my mom. Our house in Reno had a very large library right in the, uh, right in the living room right there. And, and uh, you know, I just can always remember, you know, reading anything I get my hands on, encyclopedias, newspapers, books, mm-hmm. as you know, just reading and writing was a way to make sense of the world and to find stories and find uh, other people doing different things, but um, maybe having center, uh, similar sentiments or responses to things that, that I could understand and appreciate. Uh, you know, a, a big formative moment, I think, in my journey as a writer was, uh, you know, I came home, I was about 14 or 15, and, uh, you know, it finally dawned on me that I was not going to be a professional basketball player. Uh, no matter, no matter how, how, how hard I tried or practiced, I was you know, never going to be taller than, than five foot 10. And, uh, you know, my mom saw that I was depressed and started talking to me and said, well, you know, you're, you're on the newspaper. You, you've always enjoyed writing. Have you ever thought about becoming a journalist or becoming a writer? Hmm. And, and, you know, with all the certainty of, uh, of that age, I, you know, I told her, oh, mom, writers don't come from places like Reno. Uh, you know, in my head, I, I thought, you know, writers came from places like New York or yeah. Paris or Buenos Aires, uh, you know, I, I didn't know what I didn't know, uh, of course. And, and luckily, I had, a, I had a really patient mom uh, who just looked at me and shook, shook her head and, and uh, pulled down from uh, her shelves uh, books by Joan Didion, who was from mm. nearby Sacramento, uh, Robert yeah. Laxalt, who's a big uh, Nevada literary legend, and handed them over and said, just read these. They, you know, they, they, changed, uh, they changed so much um, reading about northern Nevada from, from the perspective uh, uh, from generations before through Laxalt's eyes, reading about uh, Didion Valley's or Didion Sacramento Valley uh, before, you know, kind of became a more hu- uh, hustle and bustle place uh, in her in her early novel, uh, Run River. Uh, it was really transformative. And it, it just kind of allowed me to see that writers could indeed come from anywhere, e- even suburban Reno. Yeah. So were you writing at this point or were you still just reading and kind of thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, I was writing sports articles for the the high school newspaper, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know, I was probably trying my hand at a, my own Tolkien fantasy novel uh, <laughs> on the side. Uh, so yeah, you know, but but you know, that was that conversation was really when I started thinking that I could be a writer someday. Yeah, you know, yeah. when I was old, when I was old and gray, you know, like uh, at you know thirty or something. Uh, yeah, fifteen thirty seems ancient. So uh, that that really kind of got the wheels spinning for me. Yeah. I heard the best advice once where, you know, someone was saying, why does the world need me as a writer? You know, they've already had somebody who 
who is like me, is my age, is my gender, is, you know, there have been a million people who have already come before me and who have already done it. And the the writer who was giving the advice just said, "There, no one has been you before. Right. It seems I like, love that. Uh, yeah, it seems like your mom was that kind of a, a guru figure for you. Yeah, she was. Um, you know, there were definitely books she suggested uh, that I tried reading over the over the, over the years that didn't didn't stick quite like that initial batch, but uh, uh, that's okay. We've it's become a reciprocal relationship where I'll I'll suggest books I really love, and uh, uh, she, she's not as into them. But that you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's 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 been fun. You know, uh, in that way, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, my mom and I, my mom and I have become friends uh, through literature, uh, sharing books that way, and, and you know, uh, part of growing up, I think, is recognizing your parents as people, and uh, uh, books uh, have been instrumental uh, in that way for 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 me and my mom. Yeah, exploring why she doesn't like a book that you recommend seems like it would be illuminating. Yeah, exactly. Especially you know, especially books as a young man that uh, really spoke to me. Of course, she's reading them through the eyes. Uh, mm. Mm-hmm. A middle-aged woman and also a mother to a to a young man, uh, worried that maybe some of the things uh, the characters are, are doing or saying, uh, I'm not reading them as the forewarning that that that, that they're meant to be. Uh, though yeah. we had a couple, we had a couple of those conversations uh, in college, especially. I bet my okay. So let's go to college. So you went to Wake Forest, and what mm-hmm. year are we talking about here? So I showed up as a freshman at Wake in 2001. Uh-huh. So uh, and uh, it was you know. Uh, a pretty pricey school, best school I could get into, and and ROTC Army ROTC was a, a mechanism to to make that all happen. So uh, I was probably week week or two uh, into my college days when when nine eleven occurred. Oh wow! Okay, so ROTC though, if your parents were lawyers, it, there still must have been some element of choice, or was this was this really a financial financially driven decision? I'd say fifty fifty. Yeah, choice and and it, it certainly greatly eased the financial burden right. on family. Uh, but yeah, I, it, it part, part part of me wanted to do it for sure. Um, I didn't have any clear career plans. Um, you know, writing was this vague notion in my head at the time. You know, I'd grown up in the '90s. Do you remember that show Jag? Uh, yeah. Yep. On NBC, I think you know that uh, it was a Navy lawyer that flies fighter jets and uh, you yeah. know is, is part spy and everything. I was like, oh, you know. It, it, uh, in, in all the naivety of the very little research I'd done uh, to see what I was getting myself into, I thought it'd be kind of like that. I, you know, I, I didn't really know. Yeah. You know, uh, and of course, a week or two into it, uh, 9/11 changed the trajectory for a lot of people's lives, my 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 own included. I, I mean, I remember uh, you know going to the chapel there at Wake Forest uh, that night and you know praying praying for for all the victims both in D.C. and New York and and you know it seems so quaint all these all these years later. Because you know history's turned out so differently, but at that time and in that moment and it, it, at that age, uh, it 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 felt like our generation's Pearl Harbor, and yeah. uh, you know it's 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 you know it seems so quaint to even say it now, but but uh, that's just because uh, history's played out so differently. Yeah, I can remember I was teaching at the time, and I can remember students coming in, and one woman in particular. Uh, you know, September 12th said, my boyfriend is on his way to sign up for the military. Mm-hmm. And I said, that must have, that must have shocked you when he told you. And she said, I knew as soon as it happened that he was going to do it. And I said, uh, oh, is he, you know, patriotic or, you know, what, what did you know about him that made you realize that he would do this? And she said, 
Uh, he's just someone who doesn't like things that are wrong. Like he's he's someone who takes uh, justice and pride and and matters like that very seriously. And when he saw this happened, he knew he wanted to be a part of the fight and to push back. You know that America it was our Pearl Harbor for our generation. It was you know it was a it's it's easy to forget now just what a a shock it was and and how viscerally people felt it. But for you, you must have felt, on the one hand, that this was going to be a, a complete change for what this meant for you, your college education, and and how you expected your military career to go. Very much, very much so. Uh, it crystallized a lot of things uh, uh, for me as a young person. You know, it also felt... Uh, like something important awaited me on the other side of college. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, uh, it, you know, in that way, it freed me up to take courses uh, that I wanted to take uh, in uh, in history and English. So I started taking some writing workshops, you know, just just trying to broaden my knowledge of uh, history in the Middle East, of uh, uh, leadership, of famous books, uh, famous military literature written over the years. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I, I, had a, uh, I had a clear job. I had a clear clear purpose on the far side of graduation. So right. in that way, I could just actually focus on the education at a liberal arts school, maybe in a way I, I would not have otherwise had had that not crystallized the way it had. So right. that was that was one benefit. One drawback was, uh, a, you know, a lot of morbid nights wrestling with thoughts of mortality and death that uh, uh, your average 20 year old kid doesn't have to do on a college campus. But uh, that, you know, uh, it was it was a choice. And, and, and what I was uh, proud to be making at the time. Well, did that push you toward literature as well? I'm sort of what I'm kind of hearing, and tell me if this is going too far, but that you're thinking, looking back, you're thinking, boy, when I was 19 or 20, had that not happened, and I'm just going through college on my ROTC plan, I might be thinking, oh, well, should I, you know, maybe I'm going to need to do accounting as a fallback or something, you know, engineering or something where it's like a a steady paycheck at the other end, but instead, because it was so clear that you were going to be enlisted and busy and uh, risking your life, that it was more of a, a question of I better, I better have some things to think about here. I better, ha- I better have some understanding of life and myself, and you know all the things that literature could provide. I think that's very true. I think in, in a world where nine eleven doesn't occur, um, and I'm still, I still did ROTC. I think I'd probably become a, a JAG lawyer, an Army lawyer, mm-hmm. and, and, and serve out my time that way. Uh, but because 9-11 happened, because combat was uh, imminent, you know, I, I decided that I wanted to uh, do it from the front and, and uh, ended up becoming a, uh, an armored cavalry officer. Uh, and because of that, in those, in those college years, yeah, that absolutely led me to read, uh, read more widely, um, read a certain type of uh, literature especially. You know, I fell in love, fell in love with Hemingway in these mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. like like a lot of young men do. And yeah, I, I don't, uh, I don't think I would have gravitated toward toward that type of book and toward that type of class in in this uh, in a in a peaceful America. Were you looking at Hemingway's short stories, or for whom the bell tolls, or what appealed to you? Oh God, I mean, during those years, all of it. But I, uh, yeah. I think the the gateway drug was the sun also rises. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the stories, of course, sucked me in. And, but yeah. I mean, for whom the bell tolls, uh, when we're talking about specifically books that kind of, you know, can take hold of a young person's mind, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there, there are some extraneous parts of that, that book, but those, 
those last 40 to 50 pages are, I mean, they're, they're incredible. They're, they're so tender and beautiful. And, uh, as differently as I think I view that climactic scene now as a, as a cranky writer in his mid thirties, uh, it was, it was poetry to my young idealistic soul, uh, yeah. back, back, back in college. Yeah. And I guess I should have mentioned a farewell to arms too. That's yes, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Is it, that, that's, uh, is it the, is it the very first chapter that opens with kind of that sweeping forestry scene? I, it's, it's either chapter, the opening of chapter one or chapter two. Yeah. And I remember, I remember looking back on that and, uh, trying to teach, trying to teach myself, okay, this is how geniuses present imagery to mm, a reader. Yeah. So they really make people feel immersed in, in what the characters are, are seeing and smelling and, and hearing. Yeah. So, uh, what was your role in Iraq? I was a scout platoon leader, uh, uh-huh. in charge of, uh, uh, 30 soldiers. And, uh, we were sent, um, over there in, in 2007 as part of the counterinsurgency, the surge, part of the shift to counterinsurgency. Mm. Um, so, you know, a lot of, uh, a, a lot less force on force type of stuff and a lot more kind of, uh, interacting with the locals, uh, trying to build up, trying to establish something like a, like an economy, um, waiting to get shot at by the insurgents and, and then responding accordingly. Uh, but it was a, it was a lot more human interactions, uh, with the, with the local Iraqis than I probably would have anticipated a, a couple years before. Yeah. That's such a, uh, I mean, we all lived through that from here where we were reading about this and it always seemed like such a you know such a hybrid of tasks that you were asked to do on the one hand be prepared to to do all the things that soldiers do in war and and risk your own life and kill and be killed and on the other hand at the same time trying to win the hearts and minds of the civilians and and do some some rebuilding and some some generating of trust and those kinds of things. It seems like it must have been a a very what's the right word sort of intellectually challenging and and maybe maybe it it pushed people to the breaking point to try to to try to handle both of those things and to fit them both into one mind in, in the same day. Very much. Uh, it was it was an education, a, a stark one. You know, I think it was hardest on some of my soldiers who had deployed before, uh, either to Iraq earlier in the war or maybe to Afghanistan, uh, and had you know had some nasty experiences, and then to come back over and to pretend that you know they hadn't lost uh, some of their colleagues and and um, yeah. to uh, you know try you know because at that point uh, winning the war the way Rumsfeld had foreseen was not happening. We were we were literally just trying to keep a civil, uh, civil war from, uh, breaking out. It was, it was challenging for us all. And, and, uh, you know, 15, you know, something that I think that was helpful for me at the time, uh, was, you know, 15 months was a really long time. Uh, there's no doubt about it, but looking around and interacting with those local Iraqis, whether they were the, uh, the powerful sheiks we were, we were negotiating contracts with, whether they were the, the Iraqi policemen or soldiers we were, we were going on raids with, or, you know, even just the local barber, or the you know the, the the local kids who sold us energy drinks, really kind of realizing this was this was everything. This was all they'd known for for years, uh, mm-hmm. all they would know for for many more years to come. Unfortunately, uh, so you know I, I try to keep that in mind to to keep some perspective uh, on, on everything. That uh, uh, you know, fifteen months was a long time, but really for uh, we we had an, we had an end date to to this experience. Uh, the people we were 
we were living amongst uh, and interacting with uh, uh, did not have that luxury. Right. And were you uh, was literature a part of your life? Did you were you did you have access to books? Did you take books with you and and were you able to read? Yeah, uh, took some books there. Uh, I read uh, Lawrence of Arabia over there. Uh, oh, some, right. Some of it was similar to our experiences. Uh, some yeah. of it was not. Uh, but uh, you know, when he when 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 he's on, he he's he's fantastic. Yeah, kind of a classic. Uh, go uh, write write big and go for it and, and and see what lands. You know, some of it was a bit grandiose, but that uh, t- to my eyes, but that's okay. Uh, I remember reading uh, uh, Dispatches uh, by Michael Hare over there, um, mm. and mm-hmm. uh, that was that was that was good too. Uh, in terms of as nasty as Iraq could be, some days we didn't have to deal with tigers. Uh, in the jungle, so that was uh, uh, helped put things in perspective. Uh, but I also just remember reading some stuff that uh, uh, friends or family sent me that had nothing to do with with war or, mm. or combat. My mom sent me. I re- first read Rebecca West's *The Return of the Soldier* over over there, and and I think my mom was not so subtly trying to make a point that uh, there would be life uh, after after yeah. Iraq. Uh, some uh, one of my college friends that I you know had had some good times with. Grew up in the same hometown in Maine as Richard Russo, so he sent me some books. Uh, he sent me *Straight Man* and *Empire Falls* by Richard Russo, and uh-huh. so bizarrely, I associate Richard Russo with Iraq, of all places, because that was the, the that was the first place I read him. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you know, it, you have you know, I think it's any war story story about combat will will tell you there is a lot of t- free time to kill. The the waiting around sometimes is the worst part. So. Uh, I read a ton over there. Frankly, I uh, looking back on it, I wish I could. You know, we didn't have t- too much access to the internet, so uh, mm. I, I wish I, I wish I could had that kind of force non digital t- uh, that, that force non digital time upon me again. That, that wouldn't be a bad thing for my pro- productivity. Yeah, and I I was trying to th- imagine what you might have turned to literature for, and I think I I wrote a list of uh, possibilities down. It sounds like it was a mix of of a bunch of things, inspiration and and a bit of escapism. And there must have been times when you were glad to uh, to not have to think too much and times when you were looking for uh, writers who had gone down similar paths or thought similar things to what you were experiencing. I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, much like any anybody who, who walks into a bookstore and, and, and wants to pick up a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're just looking to connect with with another with another human being or or a story and immerse yourself in it. And there's a multitude of reasons why you why you may be compelled to do that at the time. And uh, uh, yeah, uh, I think I had to ship home a, a whole Footlocker by the end of it uh, uh, of, of of books um, to to get them all home. Uh, luckily, I mean it's, it's crazy, but I, I guess it's a testament to uh, the American war machine. I mean, this was over a decade ago now, but you ordered something from Amazon, it would get there in seven to 10 days. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> they, they deliver all over the world. Um, that was, that was kind of bizarre too. Um, feeling it's at, at points, you know, incredibly disconnected from right. your old life and, 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 and the people you love, but also, uh, you know, being able to order something on Amazon or when you did have internet access, um, uh, Writing them on, on 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 writing on their Facebook wall, that kind of stuff. So that yeah. was uh, that was kind of a uh, halfway there, halfway not surreal experience. Part of the part of the war experience in the twenty first century. Right. So I I have not been a soldier, but I did some traveling in some remote locations uh, before the internet. And one of the things I remember is how 
you know, someone would be reading a book and then we would all trade books. You know, we were always worried we were going to run out of stuff to read. And so everybody, whatever you were reading, you might be on a, a bus trip that took three or four days and you'd read, you know, Crime and Punishment. And meanwhile, you'd have your eye on the book that your your friend was reading, which would, you know, be Kafka or something, take you in a different place. And, and then you could talk about the things you were reading because everyone sort of read the same stuff. And was that happening with you? Or were you sort of alone as the the uh, solitary reader in your group? Uh, there were there were a couple other guys. Soldiers generally, in general, are not maybe the most uh, uh, literary crowd. But, uh, you know, that's not, uh, I was not, by, by no means was I the only one. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we'd get, we'd get back from a long patrol. I'd say most of the guys, uh, you know, just wanted to call home. Uh, maybe hit the gym, play video games. That that was something I just never understood. Uh, why, why you'd uh, want to get back from long patrol and then go play Call of Duty or something? But uh, for some <laughs> for some guys, that that was their thing. But yeah, did did, right. did I have did I have, did I have friends uh, at the outpost that that I'd swap some books with and recommend some stuff to? Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think it changed you as a reader in any way? Did your experience as a soldier did it make you? Uh, impatient with any authors or um, with any types of books, or or do you think it opened you up in a way, or how do you is is there a way you can identify any ways that you changed as a reader? Oh, that's a great question. I think, and I you know I I'd, I'd hope that I would have gotten gotten here eventually anyhow, but I think kind of being in that bizarre counterinsurgency environment where. You know, a lot of times, even the guy, the the insurgents we were going after, you know, very, very few of them were kind of, quote unquote, evil, right? A, a lot of them were, you know, a lot of them were 18, 19 year old kids, no younger than some of my younger, uh, younger, younger soldiers who got paid, you know, a month's sal- a month, a month salary that they would have made farming to try to plant a bomb on, on the foreign occupiers. Mm. You know, and, and who in the formative years of, of their lives have, have brought a lot of ruin and destruction. Empathy has its limits. Yeah. Uh, they're still trying, they're still trying to kill me and my friends, but uh, I, I can understand that. That that uh, after after we capture you, I, I can see things from your per- perspective and point of view. You know, when I, when we'd raid houses looking for some of these guys, and and they weren't there, but their their mothers or their, their older sisters were, and they're they're glaring at us. I can 100. percent They're giving the same look that 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 my mom or grandma would would give yeah. uh, if somebody busts down my door in the middle 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 of the night. Right. So you know how, how does that relate to to me as a reader and 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 hopefully me as a writer? I'm just trying, you know just trying to remember to to give all characters their dimension their full dimensionality their due. Mm. Even though even, even if they're just a minor character on the page, give them give them as much space. As, as you possibly can, uh, without you know, uh, in service to the story, you know this is not this is nothing new. Dostoevsky famously would always give his villains uh, the best argument uh, in his books uh, for similar reasons. But yeah, you know, I, I think that is something that stayed with me. That that when I pick out as a reader, you know, kind of stock characters uh, that are really just kind of there to serve serve uh, an authorial point or serve uh, as an obvious trope. I tend to roll my eyes, and that's, mm-hmm. that is that is probably something I, I directly encountered, and and had to reckon, reconcile uh, and reckon with uh, in Iraq. Right. It's interesting that that was your answer to the question of how did being a, a soldier make you a, a different reader? Because my guess is, if 
most people had to guess how might literature make someone a better soldier, they would have talked about a very similar thing, that it would expand them and, and be able to see things from multiple points of view and to understand the people around them better. So do you think that was part of, would you attribute your your life and in literature as, as being something that uh, helped you as a soldier as well as the other way around? Sure. Yeah. There's a, yeah. Now that now that she's put it that way, there's I think there's a chicken egg dynamic going on. Yeah. You know, certain certain people I think just deal with the world this way, and and they, you know, I think most readers and writers uh, tend tend to be okay with this this kind of uh, complexity and 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 dealing with nuanced perspectives. But you know, I, I think most of us have friends that that uh, find that um, paralyzing, and, mm. and they find they find power and urgency. Yeah. In kind of singular thinking. And, you know, some, sometimes that can be really frustrating to deal with uh, on an interpersonal level. But, uh, you know, sometimes, especially with soldiering, you need to be like that. It might help. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that, that was something uh, as a soldier, I really had to learn how to do to know when to kind of turn off my uh, my literary brain uh, right. and, and, and just power through the mission. OK, so you came back. Eventually, you went to Columbia and got an MFA. So I'm guessing that was after you came back. It is, yeah. So yeah. I, I got I got back in uh, early 2009. This this was that brief glimmer of time when the when the war seemed to, seemed to have been won, uh, or you know as close to as as won as as these type of um, these type of wars can be. Got out of the army shortly thereafter. I you know I, I met my my service commitment and and uh, wanted to wanted to do other things with my life. And uh, my then girlfriend and now wife was was here in New York. So. Uh, I thought, uh, what the hell? Maybe I'll maybe I'll try this writer thing after all, and uh, it ended up moving here, moving to New York, and, and then going on to Columbia for my MFA in 2011. Mm. And had you been writing even uh, in Iraq? Were you, in addition to you know letters and and Facebook posts and things like that, had you been trying to write fiction or trying to write essays or anything like that? Uh, not fiction, uh, just yet. I, I, I'd been keeping a blog, uh, mm-hmm. mostly as a way to keep in touch with family and friends. Then it got shut down by my Colonel right. for saying, saying some unflattering things about him. Um, <laughs> which, you know, it's a good, it's a good, uh, you know, he handled it poorly, but on the other hand, uh, let that be a lesson for any younger listeners. Uh, whatever institution you're a part of, you can't make fun of your boss on the <laughs> internet, particularly <laughs> if it's the army. So uh, that was a that was an education in and of itself for for a young young brash lieutenant, but uh, you know I, I think that planted some seeds. I you know my intent for that had always kind of been you know to keep in touch, but also maybe serve as a time capsule. Mm-hmm. But uh, because it got shut down, it, it, it caught some attention from from folks. Uh, uh, there was a Washington Post reporter that, that did a story on it. So uh, uh, that kind of ended up, uh, in a very roundabout way, um, eventually becoming my first my first book, the memoir, Kaboom, mm. uh, embracing mm-hmm. the in a savage little war. Were there stories that you felt weren't being told? Oh gosh, uh, somewhat. You know, I, I, it, it felt yeah. like there was a lot of like, you know, the war was so political, uh, and and ju- mm-hmm. justly so. Just you know, it's it's all wars wars are political, and 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 it should you know in a, in a engaged in a republic of engaged citizens uh people should engage on that uh, in that way but you know i I did part of me uh particularly being there uh found it important to uh, kind of talk about the day-to-day courage i I saw from my soldiers 
Mm. You know, not the Medal of Honor stuff, though, you know, when we were under fire, they performed very ably. But even just kind of, you know, doing this day in and day out, the grind, uh, the grind of it all, um, yeah. doing the system, what it, you know, how it wore, wore down, you know, these very tough physically, physically and emotionally men uh, that uh, I learned so much uh, from and, and, and was inspired from daily. You know, I mean, there were days I, you know, I wasn't sure if I could pull up my 140 pounds of bones and, and do it again. But uh, I did it. I did it because they were right. And, and uh, uh, you know, that's a old, old soldierly truth. But uh, it was very visceral and very powerful in the moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wanted to I wanted to share that with with uh, uh, with people, you know, whether they were the family members of, of, of my soldiers or whether they were just complete strangers, um, maybe to learning to look, learn a little bit more about, about things. Um, just kind of give it a human touch. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, bef- before the, the, the previous phases of the war, so to speak, uh, the Iraqis really didn't come through in much of the literature because people just kind of drove around and, and shot at each other. You know, the acts of everyday bravery I saw from the Iraqis in the village we were at amazed me and still amazes me. You know, for a lot of these folks, they, they could get reprimanded for being seen talking to an American soldier too long, mm. for, for selling us falafels, uh, for talking about new neighbors that had moved in, uh, came and went at odd hours in the night. But that happened daily because they want the same thing anybody does in this world or, or the vast, vast majority of people want from this world, a little bit of peace, a little bit of stability, a place to raise their kids. Uh, and you know, the war was taking all of that for some Iraqis that we interacted with. They thought the best way for, for that to end was, uh, was to work with us. And, uh, uh some of their neighbors arrived at, at a completely uh, opposite conclusion. I'm, I realize I'm kind of rambling a bit now, but, uh, it was all these years later, it's still, it's still so complex and murky, so there's just maybe a way to remind some listeners of, of what it was like in the moment, mm. because it was it was it was all, all sorts of murky and confusing at the time. Yeah. Well, when you first started talking, I was thinking of uh, Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried and how, um, you know, that served that kind of a purpose for, I'm sure, the close relatives of the Vietnam soldiers, but also all the rest of us to to kind of take it away from you know, the arguments that you would hear from politicians and historians about, you know, whether the the reasons for the war were righteous or whether the politicians were lying or, you know, all of the sort of the back and forth that, that take up most of the oxygen and instead focusing on the actual soldiers and the lives that they were living. And I could imagine that that would be really powerful, especially for people who were trying to understand uh, what the experience was like for someone they lost or for someone who came home and, and had a hard time talking about it. But as you went on and you extended your answer to include the Iraqis, it made me think we should probably talk about Adichie. And yes, um, you you gave me a great list of, of favorite authors to discuss, and, and it was really hard for me to pick. Um, pick from them. You had George Orwell and Catherine Ann Porter and Joan Didion and John Hersey. And in the end, I just decided, let's go with the first one on your list, which was Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and her book, Half of a Yellow Sun. She's such an amazing writer. Where were you when in life when you discovered this book? Right. Half of a Yellow Sun was uh, incredibly transformative for me uh, as a first as a, as a human being, I think, um, uh, then as then as a soldier and, the, and, the, and then than perhaps as a reader and as a writer. I was in Hawaii. Uh, it had been published uh, 
maybe a month or two before. Uh, this is in 2007. Hmm. So I'm in, I'm in the Army stationed, stationed in Hawaii, but we have not yet deployed to Iraq. We're, we're training up. We're getting ready to go to Iraq as an escape uh, to get away from all the PowerPoint sessions and, and all, all, the, all the times we're, we're at, the, at the gun range. We lived by Barnes & Noble uh, down in Honolulu. And so every, about every Saturday or so, uh, just to kind of feel like a normal human being, I would uh, put on put on board shorts, sandals, and a t-shirt, and uh, uh, go to Barnes and Noble, pick up a new book, and then you know uh, head down to the beach and just kind of zone out. And uh, you know I can't remember exactly which month it was. You know, right there in the front of the bookstore and like the new and notable section, mm. I came across this big book called Half of a Yellow Sun. That when I read the the, the description was about a country I'd never heard about, uh, Biafra. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that existed, uh, in the late sixties, uh, in Africa. And, uh, I was like, well, why, why not give it a chance? This looks interesting. It looks different. Uh, it's, it's certainly not about soldiers and, and men getting ready for, for battle, uh, which I, I just kind of wanted to get away from that for that day. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, such a, such a powerful, can- a wide canvas book. It, I learned so much about uh, the history of, of Biafra and, and, and the Nigerian civil war, I learned so much about colonialism and uh, the legacy of, of colonialism in, in Africa from a literary perspective. I, you know, I'd, I'd studied it in history courses, of course, but um, uh, and read Heart of Darkness, but mm. you know that, that was set set decades uh, before and, and obviously told from a from a very different point of view. Yep. And, and what I most admired about Half of Yellow Sun and, and still do is the the multiple perspectives. Mm. How Adichie starts with uh, the young house houseboy from the from a small village. And then you know rotates uh, rotates through the university professor uh, uh, Odenigbo, uh, and then also writes from the perspective of uh, the British expat Richard, right? And and she kind of rotates through these three very different characters to just tell a broad ranging story. And you know then then by the time the I'm totally hooked by the time the the actual uh, civil war occurs, and then you know as I'm going through this I'm realizing that it's um, teaching me that the war that I'm preparing for. It's going to be about so so much more than me or my soldiers. Mm-hmm. That it's going to be so much more uh, than you know, for understandable reasons, of course. But when you're training training to deploy, it is all about the mission. It is all about your point of view. It is all about you know, in our case, the occupier perspective. Right. And uh, half of the yellow sun, and also uh, coming from an Irish background, it, uh, being raised with a, a certain mentality toward toward history, really kind of forced to the forefront of my mind that I, if I wanted to be the leader, and if I wanted to be the person that I aspired to be, when we were in Iraq, try to remember the Iraqis we were around, um, because you know more than anything, half of Yellow Sun, particularly the last half of it, is a, is about exploring the ruin of war uh, on upon civilians, mm. which of you know, which of course any any conflict, the hard data will show you not just deaths and and and, and injuries through through direct combat through an accidental gunshot uh, or something but but uh, uh, the the rampant illness right uh, the the amount of displaced yeah. uh, people having to up and move uh, at a moment's notice which in you know places like Nigeria in this story and then then I saw firsthand in Iraq uh, isn't as simple as just going to your neighbor's house on the other side uh, to a different to a different cul-de-sac there were real consequences to this because there are Sunni Shia uh, huge Sunni Shia divides to, mm. to navigate there were tribal tribal divides to navigate in, in Biafra and, and Nigeria, and uh, you know the, I, I'd go on to learn when I 
uh, after I finished half of Yellow Sun and, and learned more about Adichie herself, that this was um, a story that that belonged to her family and, and that uh, it was something that she'd inherited and that you know she set, set about to write this book to uh, because she'd seen the after effects of it. I, I, I was just so impressed that that she managed to tie all this together. Uh, for you know, when she wrote it, she was she was a pretty young writer, and to kind of ha- uh, show uh, uh, such wisdom, some such care uh, from everything from the sentence level, uh, you know, gra- being able to write a tight sentence that captures a re- reader's attention, to being able to to teach in a in a in a storytelling way, not in a didactic way. I just you know, at the time, I just knew it was always going to be one of my favorite books that I ever read. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of that is a testament to to the book, and and I perhaps some of that is is uh, because of where I was in my own life when I picked it up. Yeah. Oh well, she's she was young, but uh, genius. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> doesn't need yes. a lot of age. It is such an amazing book. It's just unforgettable characters as they go through the the optimism and the hope, but also the disappointment of war. And you know, I'm wondering. I watched the Ken Burns documentary on the Vietnam War. And there was this this move of the leadership where I think they had to feel like they were making progress and they had to feel like they could quantify the war. And so it was, did we take the next hill and did we secure how many, you know, what what's the acreage of what we have secured? And then the body counts, how many dead do they have versus how many uh, injuries do we have? And you you get the sense that the soldiers were becoming aware of this may be winning a battle but losing the war if we're trying to to talk about the civilian population we may be doing things that are counterproductive here and our focus may be on the wrong things i'm wondering for the iraq war if you felt like that or if you felt like no the you know everyone gets it that we're here not just for you know to kill the enemy but to uh, hearts and minds are important here. And if, if that's the case, if literature helped you just sort of, uh, I guess what I'm wondering is you're a very thoughtful person and you're reading things like Adichie. Did it help you to see the truth about what you thought was happening? Or did you feel like the truth was sort of available to everyone, but it helped you to better deal with it? And, and that what you were being asked to do was very demanding and that, her example was able to um, to help support you in your your own mind when you were going through these things. Sure, yeah. I looking back, and I'm not sure how conscious of it at the time I was, just because you're just yeah, so you're so tired <laughs> more than anything. I just remember being just constantly exhausted. Uh, I was took me took me a while. I was I mean, you just get addicted to some really hardcore energy drinks, you know, which is, uh, mm. it doesn't seem like much, but when you're, when you're doing it, uh, yeah. sleeping on three to four hours every night for, for over a year, it, it, it wears on you. Right. I think more than uh, the, coming from a background of you know, serious reading or, or trying to, at least, I think it helped me compartmentalize mm-hmm. and being, uh, uh, realizing there was a time and place, even over there uh, off patrol to sort through some of my darker questions and concerns but especially during my time as uh, as a platoon leader, that uh, I had to keep that to myself uh, while while out of the wire, while with yeah. my guys. Yeah. But you know, I mean, they 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 uh, they weren't shy about saying it uh, saying it themselves out loud. And mm-hmm. you know uh, that you know for us, our, our version of kind of the body count 
uh, at least when we were over there, was it, it felt like we were buying the piece, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of those, a lot of those sheiks we were interacting with, and they were getting these you know very big uh, road paving contracts or water treatment plant contracts. A lot of them had we had packets on them that, that showed they had uh, Al Qaeda ties, or uh, uh, if they were if they were Shia, Jaysh al Mahdi ties, right. and some somebody some some major or, or lieutenant colonel uh, back at base had determined. It was more pertinent uh, to the war, the greater war effort that we ignore that, at least in the moment. And, you know, I, maybe maybe there was some truth to that. It, it, it's something even all these years later, I, I, I'm not comfortably saying I have 100 percent strong feelings on either way, mm. because, you know, there was we, I saw it firsthand. Most of the most of the firefights, most of the IEDs we experienced came in the first three months we were over there. It, it got it got more peaceful. Uh, well, uh, let me rephrase that. Actually, it got more calm, yeah. and I think more than anything that I, that experience, then what 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 followed after after we'd returned home, showed me that calm and peace are not the same thing. That uh, more than anything, our efforts had bought uh, calm, at least for our part of Iraq, and that's not nothing. Uh, certainly, it was not nothing to the local Iraqi families and 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 people who you know, benefited from those years who earned money, uh, during those years working, uh, you know, working for that sheik, uh, on that road paving contract. And, uh, he got enough money to, 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 to get him and his family North to a safer part of the country. So, you know, real lives were affected. And I try to remember that when I get too, uh, too downcast, uh, and too, too downtrodden about how, how the war as a whole played out. Yeah. But um, I also don't want to convince myself that uh, we were part of some great noble enterprise either because um, uh, because we weren't. And I, I think it's important that uh, that's vocalized. Uh, and that, yes, that is only one veteran's opinion, but it's it's you know something it's a conclusion I've 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 arrived at after, you know, a lot of a, a, a lot of anguish. Mm. Well, I mean, it, it makes it perfect for fiction because you can have characters who who strongly believe one thing and strongly b- believe another, and you, as the author, can show that you know there are multiple sides here, and and it's not one hundred percent one way or one hundred percent the other, but the, mm-hmm. there is kind of a truth in that tension. Absolutely, yes, beautifully said. You know, that's where uh, that's where real life is, and that's where that's where the best of fiction lies too. Is is those messy gray corners of existence where it's it's not clear, it's not uh, simple. It's, uh, on, you know, it's on one hand, it's not, you know, sanitized American sniper. Uh, everyone's a hero. Everyone's a sheepdog. And, and then the opposite version of that is, is, you know, it, they're not, merc- everybody that joins the military isn't a mercenary. They're not baby killers. The truth is, is, is much more complicated and, uh, and layered people, whether soldier or civilian, aren't just heroes or victims uh, or monsters. Uh, I don't know. Most people I know have been all of those things at different parts of their life, sometimes mm. in a day. Yeah. And I think we'd all be better off as citizens if we remember that, particularly in these treacherous times that we live in. Uh, also, I, I, I find at least that the, the, the writing and particularly the fiction I most respond to as a reader uh, contain, contains those multitudes. And it's something I aspire to utilize in my own work as well. Mm. So tell us about the new book, Empire City. Is this new territory for you? Is this a departure from your previous works? It is, yeah. So you know, I'd, I'd written uh, mostly st- stories, uh, whether nonfiction or, or, or fiction, heavily baked in realism. That uh, I wanted to do something weird and different. Yeah, 
Back to your Tolkien days. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, back to my uh, com- X-Men uh, comic book days, too, probably uh, as a kid. I, I just, uh, more than anything, I wanted to write a book I didn't think I could write. Mm-hmm. And as I thought about that, I, I don't know, I just kind of created a alternate America. I mean, I, I've been uh, attention that I've really become interested in uh, as a veteran uh, since getting back and, and getting out of the army is the way America interacts with uh, the word empire, mm. right? And mm-hmm. uh, some people are, are very comfortable using that word. Some people are deeply uncomfortable with it. Some, for some people, it's, it's not something they think about at all. So I, I was like, I want to create an alternate openly imperial America, you know, straight, like straight Roman Pax, Pax Romana, Pax Britannica style. Yeah. Open and proud and loud about it. Whereas personally, I would, I would describe this more as a, as a bashful empire, at least here on the inside, uh, less, less so on the fringes. Uh, so, uh, uh, that meant I had to figure out a, a mechanism for how to create an alternate America. And I went back and, you know, a lot of alter, great alternate histories show when, when something was lost, right? What, what if America lost World War II and the Nazis won? What if the South won the Civil War? I, wanted to, I ended up kind of uh, turning that on its head uh, uh, and found a world where what if America won Vietnam, right? What if uh, uh, the lessons that we thought we learned in the 70s about the extent of uh, American military force. What if all the the lessons from World War II actually were just kind of reinforced and buoyed, at least in my telling of it, a, a really dark, weird, messed up America results. Mm. In, order to, in order to do this, I had uh, President Nixon create a foreign legion taken from the Roman model. That way, uh, it wasn't American middle-class boys getting shot and killed in Vietnam anymore. It, it was uh, uh, young men, nameless, faceless names from a from a different country, trying to earn American citizenship, doing doing the dir- dirty grunt work. Well, uh, in in this America, it turned out that uh, the, the American middle class, the the voters, were j- more than fine with that, as long as it wasn't their boys getting killed for this cause. Uh, so that's all the backstory, but uh, it, it allowed me then, in a setting set 30, 35 years after that to create whatever dark messed up world I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I got, I got weird with it and I got dark and, and I uh, explored parts of, uh, parts of my brain. I, I, uh, wasn't sure I had it that made me uncomfortable sometimes, but something I think about that alternate reality allowed me to do that and freed me up as a writer in a way that I, I if, had I stuck with, uh, with realism, uh, I don't know if I would have been able to do. Mm, that makes total sense to me that, that when you're doing the adventure, or the the more fantastical, you can just go for it, and that it's it almost incumbent upon you to do that. But if you were tied to realism, you would have felt more of an obligation to be fair and judicious, and to show you know the good in everyone, you know the piece of good in in the evil, and the piece of evil in the good, and and mm-hmm. kind of stick to uh, uh, something that we know to be true about uh, human nature. Absolutely, uh, it, it allowed me to tell to focus on the storytelling. And not implications, you know. I, I, from the course of our conversation, you could, you know, I, I have mixed mixed feelings about my about my service and 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 the, and about the army, but uh, you know, I was I was I was an officer and a proud one, and I think in a in a more realistic uh, story, I would have had a hard time telling a open open story about a, a, you know a general officers who who want to attempt a coup, uh, which is which is one of the main book storylines. Uh, it's it's not a it's not a big spoiler or anything. But in this alternate reality, I was free to do that because you know what? 
uh, in the course of human history, plenty of retired generals have, or, or active duty generals have done that very thing. Uh, and and I, I didn't have to get shy or bashful because uh, about it because uh, it made sense in this America. It made sense in this story. Mm. Okay. Speaking of storytelling, I understand you're also working on the Storybound Project, which I thought my listeners might enjoy learning more about since they are, by definition, uh, podcast listeners. So Storybound uh-huh. uh, bills itself as, quote, a radio theater program designed for the podcast age. So I understand you chose a story. Uh, which one did you read and what can listeners expect? So for Storybound, I read my short story, Know Your Enemy which ran, I think, in the, there was a fiction issue of Wired uh, in early 2018. And I, uh, I wrote the story for it, uh, which is uh, set, uh, the story set 50 years in the future. And it imagines a world where the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have just kept going, kept going and kept going and kept going. And it, you know, it was really kind of my first foray into the fantastical, uh, uh, completing Know Your Enemy in many ways gave me the writerly courage necessary to then then go on and, and and write my novel Empire City. Uh, so mm-hmm. it was it was a fun it was a fun story to go back and revisit a little bit later and and, and read for Storybound. It's you know it's a very character driven story. It, it uh, it's set in kind of a war bond uh, hyper modern war bond drive where uh, these heroes the war heroes of the future gather together to uh, parade in front of rich rich Americans in, uh, around the country to, to raise money for the war effort. Uh, you know, kind of combining images from uh, World War II era reels that we've all seen with an infantry robot that that has been uh, uh, trained up to to kill and and to uh, uh, pronounce the philosophical musings of of World War One hero Ernst Jünger. It you know it just allowed me to get weird uh, mm-hmm. in 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 fifteen pages and uh, then uh, in Storybound what what they'll do what they did is they had uh, professional actors read uh, each character. Oh. So there are different voices to it, yeah. And they also have a musical score uh, that that they play in 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 more of the narrative sections. Hmm. And Jack, I can't. It was it was such a surreal experience to kind of like hear your own story, your own characters uh, yeah. told back. You know, right. somebody somebody else's artistic <laughs> vision. It was it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, they, did, they, they did such a great job with it. It was the first time I'd, I'd I'd experienced anything like this. Hearing this own world you created told through another creative prism. Uh, but, uh, it's a, it's a really, really cool podcast. Uh, they have a different author and different story told each week. Uh, one of my other favorites that they recently did was, uh, a chapter from, uh, uh the love affairs of Nathaniel P, uh, mm. uh, mm-hmm. uh, which is a really cool, you know, hip modern novel set, set in Brooklyn. Uh, so, you know, a completely different story than my own, but they crushed, they crushed that, that one as well. So, uh, it's you know uh, w- wide variety music act, professional actors uh, I, I don't know it really kind of brought a, a sense of sense of the stage uh, uh, to literature in a, w- in a way that I I'd not experienced before. Oh, very cool. Uh, okay, we're almost at the end here. I have a surprise bonus question for you. Excellent. Let's Are you ready? It. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. Yep. While walking through the desert sands, you encountered a tattered old paperback book. As you open it, hungry for literature, a genie rises out of its pages, which crumble to dust in your hands. I'm here to give you one wish, she says, but there are some strict limits. I understand you write about the experiences of soldiers. I can allow you to travel through space and time to one of three locations, the Army of Alexander the Great, the Army of George Washington, or the Army of General George Patton, and I will permit you one interview 
either with Alexander, Washington, or Patton, or with a common soldier serving in any one of those conflicts. The choice is yours. With whom do you choose to speak, and what do you want to ask them? Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I will just go with my first instinct here, because if I dwell on this too much, I'll change my mind. <laughs> seven times. Uh, common soldier under George Washington's command. Ooh, okay, yeah. right in the middle. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I think there's there's so much to be learned from the common soldier experience. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Tim O'Brien earlier, and and in addition to just being a, a genius, a, a storytelling genius, uh, you know, so much of the power of, of his work derives from that. Uh, uh, just just the guy over there trying to get by uh, uh, perspective. Yeah. Um, uh, and also, I just you know, I loved 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 uh, learning about the Revolutionary War as a, as a mm. boy. So that mm-hmm. that sparks that's, that spark is still in me. So uh, that's uh, that's my that's my first answer and my final answer. Do you would you want to know about sort of the conditions of their soldiering or about their their ideals and whether they're motivated by, you know, the the idea of of a nation they might be trying to build or a, a new society that they're trying to bring about? I think probably uh, the intersection of those two very things mm-hmm. Um uh, certainly my own experience, my day-to-day, you know, ideals, you know, y- youthful ideals led me to the, the day-to-day drudgery of, of soldiering. Uh, and you know, what, what do those ideals look like after, uh, after Valley Forge? Uh, yeah. uh what, what do they look like after, after you hear, uh, the guy next to you crumple under musket fire for the first time? Uh, you know, I have, I have my own answers, uh, to those questions. I'd, I'd be fascinated to learn what they were like for somebody back then, you know, who, Ended up founding, you know, for for all our faults, still a really incredible, beautiful republic. Uh, so uh, I would that that would be an incredible experience that I I I jump at the chance, uh, jump at the chance. The conception I have is that they were a lot of them were just so inspired by the figure of George Washington, and I'd be curious to know if that's true. Um, mm-hmm. If that's you know if if they felt like no we're following a great man and and this is he will get us through and this is a worthy endeavor or if that is something that we've kind of imposed as a as a myth on them and actually they were you know thinking about the anger at the king or whatever sure. it was that was motivating them it would it would be a fascinating thing to ask them about sure I, you know uh, soldiers are soldiers so even even uh, general washington i'm sure got griped griped about time from yeah. time to time uh, at the <laughs> least he would, I, I don't think he would slap me like uh, like Patton Patton. Would, so. <laughs> He, he was the he was the first one I eliminated for that for that reason. <laughs> okay, well, the books are Kaboom and Young Blood, which are available now, and Empire City, which is available for pre-order now, unless you are listening to this after the end of April, which is when it comes out. The project is Storybound, which includes Matt and other authors reading their works in powerful and immersive sound environments. Matt Gallagher, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Really, really enjoyed talking with you, Jack. Thanks, uh, thanks for the time. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Matt Gallagher for joining me. Oh, we've got some good episodes coming up. John Keats, Part Two, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who writes this stuff. This script, it's not worthy. It's absolutely ridiculous. John Keats Part 2, a.k.a. We actually delivered on a promise this time. 
coming up in our next episode. Just one short week away. Don't hold your breath. Not because we aren't going to come through, but because a week is way too long to be holding your breath. Breathe easily and fill your lungs with that sweet, sweet oxygen. And look forward to John Keats. He'll be here before you know it. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.